Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturing theology for Catholic Studies Academy, in for Jason Gale. And I'm joined this week by canonist Tyler Ross of the Diocese of Knoxville. Today we'll be talking about the form of liturgical expression as envisioned by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council and some common misconceptions about what they actually had in mind. Now, before we get started, don't forget to hit that like button, subscribe to our channel and select notifications. And of course, share this content with your friends. So, Mr. Ross, why don't you get us started? Uh, I'm especially interested in what you have to say as a canonist to give us sort of a baseline for this discussion. Yeah, sure. So we all, I think... Uh more so than just the regular canonists are uh, familiar with the new Traditionis Custodes document that Pope Francis uh, just recently came out with, um, the new Motu Proprio. And, and certainly that came across my desk and I read it. And um, he gave a, an explanatory note or a, an accompanying letter with it that sort of mm -hmm. explained, you know, why he was uh, taking this action, um, his mentality, his thought process behind it. And um, he said something in there that uh, that I really think is is worth uh, worth reading. Um, you know, there's all kinds of debates right now, the liturgy wars in the church, um, and and we like to caricature people, put them on one side, put them on another side. Um, but I really feel like Pope Francis was was playing the role of a father here, and I want to read a section from his uh, explanatory note um, that really got me thinking about this, this whole thing. And, uh, and then maybe we can share all of this uh, with our viewers. So Pope Francis says this, at the same time, I am saddened by abuses in the celebration of the liturgy on all sides. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that in many places, the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for, or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. And so he, he quotes actually Pope Benedict for about half of that uh, phrase there, but it was pretty striking, right? Like you might not think Pope Francis uh, of all popes would be, uh, um, you know, so put off by um, things like liturgical creativity. But there he is uh, in continuity with Benedict saying these things. And so yeah. it, it really makes us uh, have to sit back or take a step back, um, sit back maybe if that's as I'm doing right now, um, and, and ask the question, what's our standard for what's abuse and what's not? Uh, what, since the council... Um, uh, has been abused and what did the council really have in mind? Right. Yeah. Right. So I think a couple of things I would say in response to this, right. First, um, I, I took note of that same, uh, that same passage from the, um, from the explanatory letter for Traditionis Custodes. Um, now, um, also not too long ago, I posted a commentary on, uh, a certain aspect of Traditionis Custodes, um, where, you know, I took very strong issue with 
another thing that Francis actually claimed, right? Yep. Um, but you know, but I was talking about one particular thing, and I was making a I was there was a criticism of a particular phrase that he used. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think it's important to keep this this other thing in mind, right? That there is some reference to liturgical abuse, and the idea that you know there's a right and wrong way to celebrate liturgy. You can't just make it up right. as you go along. That's right. At, at a bare minimum, that's what he was saying, right? Yep, exactly. Um, so there is such a thing as the Ars Celebrandi. Yeah, and you don't the just, art of you don't, celebrating the liturgy. You don't just reinvent it every Sunday. So. Um, and it's also true historically, right? That that there was a tremendous amount of ex- of, uh, of experimentation that went on in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really until 1970 that that even began began to um, to mitigate. So, uh, as critical as people are of the Novus Ordo, um, and I have my own share of criticisms of the Novus Ordo, but but as critical as they are of the Novus Ordo. Uh, one of the reasons that the Novus Ordo was sort of maybe rushed out before it was ready for prime time was to put an end to some of the uh, experimentation that was going on. Whether mm-hmm. it succeeded or failed at doing that, I think is a, another conversation we could have. But but I think one of the reasons that motivated Paul VI to sort of rush it out of the gate was was to um, was to put a stop to all of that. Sure. Now, um, so so I want to ask a question about abuse versus um, sort of the proper celebration of the liturgy, and I I want to appeal to maybe a distinction we might draw, right? So, as a canonist, you would probably have a certain definition of abuse that, as yeah. a theologian, I might not share. Sure. So what do you what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you understand what I'm? I know, yeah. I think I know where you're going with this. So there's there's the question of um, what is laid down in the in the rubrics, right? Yes. Uh, how has the church directed the proper um, or the I don't want I want to say proper because that kind of uh, gets to the your half of this, the theologians' half of this, the um, the prescribed uh, mode of celebrating the liturgy. Um, you could do it X way or Y way in theory, but we've prescribed Y. And so that's what we're going to do. So um, on one hand, say again, from, from my point of view as a canonist, you might say uh, an abuse is anything that's contrary to the rubrics. Uh-huh. And then maybe I'll, I'll let you continue. Yeah. with. Uh, so, so, so you would say as a canonist, you can't say, for example, that, um, you can't say, for example, that uh, it's an abuse to have female altar service. I don't want to make this sure. conversation about that issue. Yeah. But just as, as an illustration, right? Right. Because canonically, it's allowed. Canonically, it's allowed. But I might say as a theologian that it's an abuse because, because I, I might argue that, um, I might argue that it, it introduces a kind of distortion, right? And it, it substitutes a very abstract question not really related to liturgy for for a, a sort of concrete question about tradition in other words um is there anything metaphysically about women that prevents them from serving at the altar answer no 
Right. But who cares? That has nothing to do with the issue, right? As far as right. I would say as a theologian, but it, right. as an illustration, I might say sure. there are abuses theologically that aren't necessarily abuses canonically speaking. Right. So there's two different questions here at play. One is whether something is allowed um, in the rubrics, as it were. And then there's the question of whether it should be allowed. Yeah, whether it should be allowed. Right, exactly. And yeah. So so my sort of role here as the canonist, um, it, it, it does kind of encompass both of those questions. But since I'm, you know, one of the lowest of the lowest rungs <laughs> in the church as a whole, <laughs> far be it for me to say what should or shouldn't be allowed. And I'm nowhere close to being anywhere near people making those decisions. But well, you, um, it, you, you are in a position maybe to say what should or shouldn't be allowed as representations of interpretations of, uh, of something that has in fact been commanded. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, yep. um, so people say, you know, the second Vatican council said to do this. And I look at the documents and I'm like, I, I'm not sure I see that there. Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, that would be a case where you, you, you as a canonist, certainly you're in a position to, to make a judgment. Yeah. Definitely on issues where the claim is being made that the council, the Second Vatican Council, um, you know, directed this this particular practice to happen, this or that practice, um, or or heavily encouraged it to happen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a there's a clear canonical, you know, claim being made there, and, and we can talk about that uh, certainly as well. Well, I think where it gets interesting is when the claim is made about the Ars Celebrandi, where uh -huh. Canon law actually does allow for two different things, but um, but there's nuance in the in how in the mind of the church that gets rolled out, yeah. um, and maybe we'll talk about some of those things specifically. But I think you mentioned one girl altar servers. Um, we might also touch on ad orientum uh, the the yeah. Position so of the so why don't we talk? About, I, I have in mind actually for this conversation because we can't talk about everything. Yeah, And I certainly don't want it to be um, sort of a, a bash fest on liturgical abuses, right? Mm -hmm. I want to get a big picture. So, so I, I have in mind maybe three major points, right? Uh, where, where people have interpretations where they, they think the Second Vatican Council had a certain thing in mind. When in fact, um, what we read in the documents doesn't support that claim, right? Mm -hmm. One of those has to do with uh, the positioning of the altar. Mm -hmm. That's what actually the Second Vatican Council directly addresses, right? Yep. And so so what, what they say in Sacrosanctum Concilium is, and, and this is interestingly, so this is 19, December 1963, they came out with that document, right? Yeah. So that's, um, that's, that's at the... Um, the council was opened in 62. Sacrosanctum Concilium was the first document that they, that the fathers actually published. And um, so anyway, the, they say there, right, that the altar should be removed from the back wall, right, pulled away from the back wall of the church. And they give a reason for this, right? So first of all, they don't mandate that if your church is just sitting there minding its own business that you should go and gut the thing. They didn't actually say that, right? Mm -hmm. They talk about new construction and 
um, major innovations that require you to approach the altar. Yep. Right. So, so in those cases, right, the placement of the altar should be removed from the back wall of the, of the apps. Why? So that the priest could walk all the way around it. That's the reason given. So the priest could walk all the way around it. Yep. Um, it's not, they don't make mention in that place of the priest celebrating what, we, what this is, a versus populum, right? Mm -hmm. They don't make mention there of the priest celebrating mass facing into the congregation. They, they simply talk about him being able to, to stand on all sides of the altar. Right. Or even if they did have it in mind that uh, versus populum was going to be an eventuality, a possibility in the future. Um, I think, and, and we can pull some sources here to show this, that it certainly wasn't in the mind of the council fathers, the council itself, that versus Advanced populum it. be the norm and that it be the preferred method. Yeah. And, and they don't by say no that. means was it supposed to be, or was um, out of orientum supposed to be excluded as a possibility. There's no, there's nothing in the council that comes even close to suggesting that. Right. And um, so I would say that um, Second Vatican Council does not positively suppress versus populum, right? At orientum, you mean? Uh, no, it doesn't positively suppress versus populum. It it doesn't say versus populum is never to be permitted. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Right, but but I I can't say that it presupposes at all that versus populum is ever to become the norm. So this is actually, this is important historically speaking, okay, because we want to recognize that going back to the 1920s, really, there were worldwide Eucharistic Congresses taking place among academics. And in the United States, there were some pretty heavy hitters involved. Um, St. John's in Minnesota was uh, one of the, was one of the places that was kind of heavily involved in that, the Benedictine monastery and um and theological school where uh godfrey diekmann taught he was one of the major um one of the major liturgical theologians at the time and a bit of a patristic scholar as well who is kind of experimental about a, a lot of things you know he um and they experimented at these congresses with versus populum and, and the use of vernacular in the liturgy, right? So come Vatican II, they saw an opportunity, this group, right? Saw an opportunity to advance some of these interests. What's interesting is that the Second Vatican Council, as I read it, actually addresses some of these interests, but doesn't endorse them. It doesn't actually, it doesn't outright condemn them. Right, it doesn't say never ever are you to do these things. It says if these conditions are met, and there's a particular need, and you yeah. know, blah blah blah, all of these sort of supporting conditions, then maybe you could do it on, with the permission of your bishop or something yeah. like that. But they never come out and say this is how it's supposed to be done. They don't do that. They don't do it for yeah. versus populum and for a number of other things. Yep. So, um, so those are some of the things that I want to talk about today, right? Yep. Um, the the movement of the altar away from the back of the church was primarily 
I mean, granted, it again, they didn't exclude versus problem absolutely. Right. So I guess, right, if if you're going to celebrate mass that way, then you'll be able to if the altar is moved away from the back wall of the church. True. But that's not the reason for doing it. The reason right. for doing it was that part of the liturgical celebration is to incense the altar and to process around it. In fact, during baptism, right, there was this, there was this, um, this ritual, which is sometimes, you know, still performed today, where the infant having been baptized is taken by the priest into the sanctuary and brought to the altar, right? Yep. So the idea is to process around the entire altar. You can't do that if the altar is fixed to the back wall of the church. Mm -hmm. And that's really the reason for that's the reason for moving the altar. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that I, th that that was the, uh, the genesis of the, the thought there was, uh, you know, especially when you, when you look East too, I, I, I always like to think, uh, as John Paul II says, well, breathe with both lungs, maybe think with both sides of the brain, <laughs> if you will. Uh -huh. um, none of their altars are against walls either. And historically neither were, Roman altars in yeah, the West. Right. So in a sense, it is as getting back to the tradition, right? Which may run counterintuitive to some, the way some people think. Um, the, the, the utility of that would be that you have all the clerics, whether they be priests, deacons, acolytes, other kinds of altar servers, um, they actually kind of go around the whole altar at various points in the mm -hmm. liturgy. Um, and one of those being to incense the altar. So it does seem that that was the, the sort of historical backdrop to all this was they're trying to get back to that. Um, now, eventually it, it did become, um, it did enter into this idea of pulling the altar out of doing mass versus populum. Um, and there is some historical precedent for that too. We don't have to get into all of that, but suffice it to say, yeah, even when versus populum was done historically, it was done only when facing actual geographic East. That's right. Like that's in St. Right. Peter's Basilica. That's right. And that's one of the things that people totally, totally gloss over, right. When they talk yeah. about, certain historical churches right where where the posture but notice the laity in that case had their backs turned to the priest yeah because because they're also facing east yep. at the same time he is so yep. um so imagine going to a mass where the priest is facing you but then you turn your back to him yeah, he's just behind you <laughs> and he's behind you yeah <laughs> exactly I mean, so i mean it, it's disingenuous right to to, to just make this to make this claim sort of uh, ahistorically without really understanding what was actually going on right so and so, well I, I just want to emphasize too um, the uh, that that the council that the church never intended to do away with ad orientum either and that the church far from encouraging versus populum um, certainly permits ad orientum to be used and I just want to I want to give this um, citation here. Yeah, I was about to ask you about this because I, I was going to ask you point blank. Um, uh, 
what is the what is the actual um canonical position here with respect to auto orientum versus versus yeah. so i have here a um a response from for those who would know what it is the congregation for divine worship and the discipline of the sacraments basically one of the one of the departments if you will in rome that deals with uh liturgical life and the well the discipline of the sacraments if you want to use the uh, title in the name um so they had a question posed to them uh referencing number 299 paragraph 299 in the uh general instruction of the roman missal the germ that's like the the document by which the the novus ordo was promulgated and it gives you all these kind of directions on how to celebrate mass and things like that so um the the question was whether the norm expressed in number 299 um, means that ad orientum is to be excluded. Uh-huh. They're basically saying, okay, given that we have 299 here, does this mean that uh, ad orientum is, is uh, abolished, that we can't do that anymore? And they responded uh, succinctly negative. <laughs> Namely, that is to say that uh, ad orientum can still be used that number 299 in the general instruction is not to be taken to say you can't do ad orientum yeah so what so, does number 299 say so we will have to look that up the altar should be built separate from the wall in such a way that it is possible to walk around it easily to your point and that mass can can be celebrated at it facing the people which is desirable wherever possible. Moreover, the altar should occupy a place where it is truly the center toward which the attention of the whole congregation of the faithful naturally turns. The altar should usually be fixed and dedicated. Right. So, um, so there's a, um, I, I think we can, we can kind of transition now into another point, right? That I wanted to address because it's related here. There's a justification given in the documents for versus populum that, um, that isn't really the theological reason that many liturgical theorists will, will provide, right? Mm-hmm. So, so let, me, let me first summarize here what some of the liturgical theorists might say, right? So they might say, um, they might argue that in the earliest days of Christianity, right, um, the um, the mass was indistinguishable really from a Seder meal or something, right? And it was celebrated around a dining room table and people were naturally facing one another. So um, the idea that the celebrant of the, of the liturgy should not be facing the congregation is totally anachronistic. Uh, at least as far, if our reference point is the primitive church. That's basically completely incorrect historically, right? There's there's no real basis for that assumption at all. Um, it's all predicated upon the idea that, I mean, well, one idea it's predicated on is correct, which is that there's a basis in the Seder meal, right? At the heart of the liturgical celebration. There's no question that's true. But 
the inference they draw that it was therefore celebrated in precisely the same way around someone's dining room table is absolutely unsupported by the historical evidence. Um, we could dig up the uh, Domus Ecclesia of Peter, right? In fact, it was dug up in the 1960s and it, it's, been, um, it's been excavated quite thoroughly. We could see in the ruins of that particular site that in the uttermost foundation of it, going back to the time that Peter himself would have been alive, there's a separate structure where the liturgical celebration clearly occurred. And it was, so there, it's a domicile in the sense that there are places to live around that, that particular room. But that particular room where the liturgy was celebrated is a distinct space. And there's every indication that it was not used for ordinary living or dining. Yep. And it's architecturally structured in a way that you and I would recognize as a church. So the, um, anyway, there's just no, there's no foundation for that. That theological justification is just ridiculous. Now, that being said, there's a practical justification, which is given in the documents, right? Do you, do you remember what that is? Not off the top of my head. Oh, it, it's basically this, the idea, um, we had talked about this before, that, that it facilitates communication between the priest and the laity. Basically, this yeah. is predicated on the idea that the laity should be able to understand what's happening in the liturgy. Yep. And if they can see the priest's face, then... And they could watch what he's doing with his hands. Right. right? More so that they could see what's on the altar. Yeah. Then, then it helps them to understand what's happening in the liturgy. Right. So I want to, I want to sort of take this a point that we brought out in the beginning and situate what we're talking about now in the, in that context, we, we mentioned in the beginning that there's the, the question of what's permissible. Um, licitly right canonically yeah and then whether it's a good idea so in this context here we're talking about pulling the altar out um ad orientum versus populum um and then the rationale behind that um you know we have in the general instruction of their own missile the answer to the question of what's permissible so the altar pulled out and it even says that versus populum is desirable where it's possible um for the reason of what you're saying right now so just i'm just kind of trying to trying to tie these things together so certainly the question of what's possible we've answered that right now we're kind of in the realm of whether it was a good idea right yeah okay so just right, situating so, situating that yeah so clearly versus pulpum is not excluded it's not even excluded it's not even excluded by sacrosanctum concilium nor is it mandated yeah right but i think we could say that um there's really nothing in the original germ right in the original uh, it's been revised a couple of times right but but there's nothing in the original publication that even suggests um versus populum as the standard as the norm yeah and and um and in fact, the rubrics even involve instructions to the priest, even now they do, involve instructions to the priest, turn toward the people. Right. Right? 
which makes no sense if you're already turned toward the people, right? It, yep. That 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 implies that there's a change in your relative posture. Okay, uh, so it, it it actually presupposes ad orientum. Yeah. Now, that said, right? Um, is it actually a good idea to prioritize communication between the priest and the people over the traditional posture for celebrating liturgy, which is observed not only traditionally in the West, but also in all the Eastern rites, right? Correct. So um, it's clearly the most ancient posture for celebrating the liturgy. There's, there's really no question about that, as far as I can tell. And, um, and there's a lot to be said for it, right? We could sit yeah. here for a long time and talk about what the ad orientum posture actually is. Ad orientum is toward the east, right? Toward facing the east. the east. So even if your physical building isn't facing the east because of whatever the zoning requirements were in your location or whatever the um, architectural limits due to the ground you have to build on might have been, right? There are all kinds of reasons a church may not be able to be built that way. But even if that's the case, there's still what they call a liturgical East, right? So basically the, the apse is fixed in a certain spot in the church. And the idea is that liturgy has a direction, a sort of movement to it. You're not just sitting in one spot, you're going someplace. You're passing over from death to life, right? From this life into the next. And you're meeting Christ at the parousia when he comes again. Liturgical East, right, is you're, you're all facing the direction from which Christ will return. It's a very powerful image and an mm -hmm. important one. Yeah, scripturally, right, he returns with the rising of the sun. Right, exactly. So, and the sun rises right. in the East. So, so, um, and actually in, in, in uh, I believe it's the, uh, I don't remember if it's the Armenian, in the Armenian church or the Chaldean, I don't remember which, but there's a rite, there's a rite of Christendom in which um, there's a point in the mass where everyone turns around and faces the West hmm. and rebukes Satan. Hmm. Right? It's interesting, right? I don't remember which. Yeah. I don't remember off the top of my head which rite that is. It's not the Catholic. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. But, but, um, so it's an important symbol, and the question is whether what is this thing about the need to communicate with the people? What, what's that all about, do you think? Well, so I think in order to answer that question, you have to situate yourself in, say, the 50s. Uh -huh. You know, um, I remember listening to a talk one time by Fulton Sheen, and he was... Um, praising this this uh this movement to put uh hand missiles in the pews mm -hmm. and and people buying you know their own hand missiles so that they yeah, can understand the liturgy better time. yeah and uh and so the you know today right like i i attend the extraordinary form you know about half the time and the ordinary form the other half the time and um it's it would be hard to go to the extraordinary form without a missile to follow along with yeah but the fact that he was doing this in the 50s, just 10 years, you know, or maybe say maybe even the 40s, so 10 to 20 years before the whole thing was revised, people were just starting to 
finally, you know, get the liturgy, mm-hmm. read it in English, have it accessible. So, you know, from a certain historical point of view, and, and just to back up a little more, that was in America, right? Where we could print things out the wazoo and it's not a problem. But in the rest of the world, it's not as easy yeah. to do that. Um, so for the rest of the Roman Rite, it, you might not have had you know, many people at all who could really pray the liturgy, pray the mass, yeah. which is what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Right. So, so go on. So when that's the norm, right? When, when you go to mass, and your normal experience of mass is complete silence the whole time because you're probably at a low mass. Um, and you just say et cum spiritu tuo three or four times and otherwise watch. Um, you might think it's the best thing since sliced bread to have the priest turn around and talk to you during mass. Mm. You know, you might be like, finally, I can understand these things. So I think that's, that was the idea behind it was we need people to pray the mass and that what we're doing right now is not working how are we going to fix the problem yeah this is this is the point at which many devotees of the um of the usus antiqui are, are likely to are likely to um to say well you know people were involved people were devoted you know, they, they did know what was going on I don't know. I mean, like, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I, I, I can tell you that right. I've been to extraordinary form liturgies in which it was clear to me that most people didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, that they, you know, they struggle. They struggle to kind of keep up to figure out where the priest happens to be. They can't really hear him very well. Uh, and then their response comes and goes before they even know it. Right. I, right. I have seen that myself. Right. So I'm not here to sort of take sides on the issue, but to instead to identify the problem that was being observed by many people. And that is that that actually participation uh, was pretty low, not because people didn't want to participate, but because they they weren't in a position to do so. Yeah, they couldn't. They didn't know how they didn't know how and they, they they couldn't hear what was going on. Right. Um, and I, and I could, I could actually demonstrate to you that, that this, there, this is an issue which the, which the fathers of the second Vatican council had in mind when they wrote Sacrosanctum Concilium. I don't think that I personally don't believe at all. You, you would have to really persuade me. And I've been studying this issue for a while. Uh, I, I don't think that the council fathers had the Novus Ordo in mind when they wrote Sacrosanctum Concilium, yeah. but I do think they did have certain actual um, revisions of the liturgy in yeah. mind. Yep. One of the important issues was to restore to the laity. This is an issue that, that I think is clear in Sacrosanctum Concilium. To restore to the laity those parts of the mass that are proper to them. Yeah. And which up until that point, and I, I make this point all the time which up until that point had been uh, relegated, if you will, to the server and the server alone. That's right. And there were practical reasons that that evolved, but, uh, but that in itself is what, okay, here, here, you want to remember that distinction we made earlier between canonical versus, versus theological abuse. I would say that 
reality was a, actually a theological abuse. Sure, I would agree Basically, with that. Basically, that the that the altar servers were praying the prayers of the laity. Right. And the altar servers are laity, right? Right. But but they're not the entire congregation. Okay. Right. And so, if you if you go and and listen to somebody explain the usus antiquior, that's exactly what they'll say is that the server responds on your behalf. That's right. On the presumption that there isn't a congregation present. But that's really the, right. that's really the idea. So right. So imagine a universe in which um, in which the average person couldn't go to mass on any sort of regular basis, but we now encourage priests to celebrate the liturgy every single day, right? Yeah. You get yourself an altar server and he gets to do the responses that the laity would ordinarily do, but they're not there. And then suddenly that turns into the norm. I think it actually has a lot more to, well, that, yes. But in addition to that, the, um, the proliferation of priest monks, that mm -hmm. most of the clergy at a certain point in the West were actually monks who didn't have parishes, um, but who eventually sort of needed to take on groups of the faithful as a parish mm -hmm. because there, were, there was an utter shortage of diocesan clergy. So when you have a bunch of priests going around who, um, like you say, are, are saying mass every day, but also are saying mass every day in their monastery on all the side altars, mm -hmm. which itself is an innovation arising out of this whole monastic um, priest phenomenon. Um, that's the mass that they know how to celebrate. They know how to celebrate a mass without people. That's pretty much it. They don't know, they don't have really the Ars Celebrandi of celebrating mass with people. So that's where you get the low mass. Which, if you've ever gone to a low mass, it may be a very beautiful thing, and I, I, you know, I like a low mass, but um, it's decidedly um, uh, apathetic with respect to you <laughs> in the pew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So this is an issue that was, this is an issue that the fathers of the Second Vatican Council intended to address, mm -hmm. and it brings us to another issue, which is which is Latin the use yeah. of Latin, or, or, or by contrast, the vernacular. So one of the claims commonly made is that the Second Vatican Council had in mind the proliferation of the vernacular in the liturgy. And I think that that's actually a distortion, mm -hmm. right? So what does the document actually say? Yeah, well, it, th this is probably the clearest one to talk about because the, the document straight up says that the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rite. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, let's see if I can find the, the quote here. Um, here it is. The use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites, plural, um, interestingly enough. Um, and then it goes on to say, but since the use of the mother tongue, whether in the mass, the administration of the sacraments or other parts of the liturgy, frequently may be of great advantage to the people. And by the way, when it says mother tongue, you might be tempted to think that they mean Latin since it's kind of the mother tongue of the West, but they actually mean the vernacular. Mm -hmm. um, so, so since the use of the mother tongue in these various uh, liturgies may be of great advantage to the people, the limits of its employment may be extended. Mm 
And then it goes on to give some norms about how we can go about approving the use of the vernacular in the, the liturgical rites of the church. Um, but here again, I think we have, we're, we're running up against this, what's, what's permitted versus what's um, prudent question, yeah. right? We, we have, you know, some people in the church, there's two extremes. Some people on one extreme saying, you know, Latin is the only language that should be used in all the rites of the church or some variation of that. And you have people over here who are saying, uh, no, we shouldn't really, you know, Latin's a dead language. We shouldn't bother learning it or doing it in the public prayers of the church. We should just go with the vernacular. But the church really, I think the mind and heart of the church is in the middle. Yeah. When, again, thinking both sides of my brain here, uh-huh. breathing with both lungs. Um, you've got for just sitting over here saying, what about us? Is all the Eastern rites of the church that use a sacred language and a vernacular language in their, in their liturgies. Yeah. Um, you also have examples historically, like I don't remember which Pope it was, but whatever Pope it was gave permission to Cyril and Methodius uh, in the 800s, I guess, to translate the entire Roman liturgy at the time into Slavonic. Well, the language that they created the alphabet, the Slavonic, Slavonic alphabet. Yeah. And then they made church Slavonic, which was the, just the language of the people that they happened to be evangelizing. Everything that they did was in that language. And the Pope gave them permission to do that. Um, there's also examples after the Council of Trent um, of, of the Pope permitting certain liturgies, say, in China to be done in Chinese. Um, he gave permission to the Jesuit missionaries to the Iroquois to say parts of the Mass in the Iroquois language. And we just have examples of this throughout history that, that really show in both East and West, the mind of the church was never to exclude the vernacular from the liturgy. Um, it's just a historic, it's, it's a weird historical oddity that in a, you know, a, a numerically and geographically big part of the church, the sacred language was the vernacular language for a very long time. Um, but so the, what the council is doing here is is sort of getting back to that idea, recognizing that the sacred language is not the vernacular language, and that there's this interplay between both. Yeah, and it and wants to the allow sacred language, the sacred language wasn't always the sacred language, was it? I mean, like it was. Right, it was the vernacular language at one point. Latin. So, um, <laughs> but so, but yeah. I, I want to round out that thought. Yeah. is that in moving from over here? You know that Latin is the only language. A little bit, you know, I would say a more center position mm-hmm. if you want to use this, that kind of spectrum, which I don't always like doing, but it's a helpful illustration. It was perceived as we're going all the way over here, and and that's to be pushed back on as well because the document yeah, here itself says right. Latin is to be preserved, yeah. but we can use the vernacular and and you know possibly in more places than some of us might think. So there were reasons for preserving the Latin, right? And also for the right. impetus to broaden the use of the uh, vernacular, right? So, so the, the reason to preserve the Latin, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one is accuracy. Translation is problematic. And the liturgy is in Latin, right? The actual liturgy is yeah. written in Latin. Yep. And there are difficulties in rendering certain concepts into new languages right you don't necessarily get the same idea 
that means that there's a lot of work to be done, given especially how broadly spread the Latin rite is. If you don't have a strong tradition of having translated it into the vernacular in the past, there's just an awful lot of work to be done. And, and that's why when they did decide to translate into the vernacular, you had all these different commissions, right? That had right. to be constructed in order to, uh, to oversee the project. Uh, so there's a practical question there. Another question is, uh, another issue is that the commonality of the Latin language puts you in touch with two things. Number one, the sort of the tradition of your of, of your uh, ancestors, right? Um, like you're making the same sounds that they made when they prayed the liturgy, and and that's not that's not a meaningless that's not a meaningless datum, right? Right. Um, and the other thing is that when you actually travel from one place to another, especially look at when this is being written. This is Sacrosanctum Concilium. This is 1963. They published it. People could travel around the world in 1963. Yep. So um, you've got Catholics in different countries who, because they are used to praying the liturgy in Latin, can still go to mass and pray the liturgy just like they did when they were home. Yeah. Um, and by the, and they actually had a lot of experience with this problem, right? Because during, during the wars of the 20th century, this, this very issue came up mm -hmm. and people did report, right? That it was a consolation to them that even when they were far away from home, they were able to celebrate, they were able to go to mass and they could participate right. at least as much as they could when they were at home. Right. Right. So, so I think, it's funny when, when, the, when the council talks about the use of the Latin, it specifically addresses preserving the Latin in those places where the laity are praying. Yeah. Right. So in the Gloria, right. Yep. Uh, for example, the, um, the order, the sung ordinary of the mass, it recommends that that be prayed in Latin. Right. And then um, it says that the laity have a right to pray the liturgy this way. Mm -hmm. interesting right yeah interesting. so yeah. it's not about just turning the whole thing into the vernacular but historically there's a little known document from john the 23rd that you and i were just talking about that's right um which which really i think blows the lid off the idea that the council fathers had in mind the wholesale uh, the wholesale sort of um, elimination of Latin from the liturgy. What, what is that document? Yeah, so he, oh man, this is a, it's a doozy for sure. It's called Veterum Sapientia uh -huh. on the promotion of the study of Latin, written in 1962. 1962. So, so this was actually February 62. This was less than two years before the promulgation of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Right. All right. And a document written by the very Pope who initiated the council itself. Um, so I want to read a, a passage here um, that really brings out the point we're making. So he says, before church students, whatever he means by that, begin their ecclesiastical studies proper, 
they shall be given a sufficient lengthy course of instruction in Latin by highly competent masters, following a method designed to teach them the language with the utmost accuracy. And that too, for this reason, lest later on, when they begin their major studies, they are unable by reason of their ignorance of the language to gain a full understanding of the doctrines or take part in those scholastic disputations, which constitute so excellent an intellectual training for young men in the defense of the faith. We wish the same rule to apply to those whom God calls to the priesthood at a more advanced age and whose classical studies have either been neglected or conducted too superficially. Then he says this, no one is to be admitted to the study of philosophy or theology except he be thoroughly grounded in this language and capable of using it. So he's, and that's just one norm that he lays down oh, yeah. in that document. I mean, he, he even says like, you can't be a, you can't, you can't be a teacher at a seminary if you can't lecture in Latin, lecture in Latin. Yeah. Which really means you're so fluent, right? You could think in the language. Right. And, and off the top of your head, construct whole paragraphs. Yep. So, um, no, that's hardcore. You can't convince me that less than two years later, the council that he opened decided to just trash the whole idea of Latin. I mean, nah, we don't need that anymore. I, I, yeah. That's just implausible to me right. as, a, as an interpretation of their intent. And we have, I mean, even, you know, Francis, uh, Benedict, certainly, John Paul II, they have all, they're all on record saying that people should learn Latin, right? They, uh -huh. they all did. <laughs> Yeah. And, and they, uh, they think we all should too. Um, I want to make a point too, though, about the uh, theological reason or rationale for having the sacred language in the liturgy, yeah. which for us happens to be Latin. You know, we hear the term sacred language a lot, but we I don't know that we really stop and think about what that means or what that implies, right? That the language like that part of the redemption of the created order includes the sanctification of particular languages. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just, without going too in depth in it, the three people hear this all the time too, but the three languages on the cross, right? Yeah. Hebrew, Greek, Latin. Um, what are the languages that our Lord is more or less recorded to have spoken were certainly Hebrew, uh, Greek, um, Latin, when he talked to Pilate, and, uh, and Aramaic, which itself is a sort yeah, of a variation on yeah. Hebrew. Yep. So, and what are the, what are the uh, sacred languages in the universal church today? Latin. Uh, we have the whole Greek-speaking church. And then we have those parts of the church uh, that uh, their heritage is Semitic. So they will speak... Um, Syriac, which itself is a dialect of Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, there are none other than that. Those are the three that all the apostolic churches use. And, and so for a theological reason, I think we can retain the use of, of a sacred language in, in the church. Um, one principle that I kind of think is helpful to think about is that in those moments in the liturgy where we are talking to God, we use the sacred language. Mm -hmm. In the moments in the liturgy when God speaks to us, um, 
we'll use the vernacular. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense thing. to me. I, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and, and here's one of, the, one of the issues I think that, you know, the fathers of the council had in mind when they recommended the use of Latin for the laity uh, in the prayers proper to them, right? These are, this is us talking to God, mm -hmm. as you were just pointing out, right? Yep. But these are also prayers that are the same every week. Yep. Every time we go to Mass, these are the same prayers. We don't, it's not like they change every time we go to Mass, right? Depending upon what day it happens to be. They're always the same, which means that we can memorize them. And we can even learn what they mean. Yeah. Right? So that we're not just praying them unconsciously. We're not just making sounds. We know what those sounds mean. Even if we can't speak the language, even if we can't converse in the language, right? We know that when we make these sounds, it's that prayer. And this is what that prayer means. Yep. Yeah. And we can offer that like as part of our sacrifice to the Lord at mass that I don't know the grammatical construction of what exactly what I'm saying right now, but I know that Agnus means lamb, Dei means God, Quitoli Peccata Mundi means who takes away the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's enough, right? Yeah, it is enough. And actually, this is something you can get from the Hebrew tradition too, right? From the, in the Jewish tradition, they're very conscious of this idea that, that in comparison to God, um, human beings are just babbling infants, right? And so um, it's, it's very common, right? For if you think of an infant babbling away at his parent, he can't formulate sentences. He can't, he can't pronounce words correctly. He doesn't know the words for things. He just makes sort of like these, these, these sounds, but yeah. his parent knows what he means and responds. Mm. And that, that I think is actually something that we can, you know, that we can, we can apply to this whole notion of a sacred language. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we could, there's a lot, uh, we could spend a lot of time just talking about language and the liturgy, but one thing yeah. I want to come away with is that the second Vatican council didn't call for the abolition of Latin. It didn't call for vernacular to be everywhere. Right. For Latin to be nowhere in the liturgy. Right. So, um, but that had to do with the whole communication thing, though, which, which I think is to some degree uh, a real issue. Yeah, and, um, absolutely. Right. Because people, there are times maybe when it's good for the lady to hear what is actually being said. And maybe what's different about this particular mass in comparison to the mass of the next week. Yeah. And so one of the things that the fathers had in mind was translating the collects into uh, the vernacular. That's a prayer specific to the day, right? Yep. It tells the people what the day is about. Yep. Which makes and a lot of sense. As well. Yeah. And I know um, the, a, a little known fact uh, is about the, the liturgy and the council and that, and that whole um, story is this, the interim mass, so-called, the Missal mm -hmm. of 1965. Um, I looked over it not too long ago, and, and it actually gives a very, very broad use of the vernacular. Basically says, every, I have to look over it again, but 
almost everything is is optional in the vernacular just like it is today Mm -hmm. um and so you know with that with that freedom comes well (laughs) i'm a spider-man fan right so with great power comes great responsibility Uh (laughs) if you have all the freedom to uh figure out what goes in the vernacular and what doesn't well you got to have some principles in mind how do i know what's more fittingly in the vernacular and what's more fittingly in the um the sacred language but then you also have to factor in what's what's useful to the people if the people are initially very off put by latin but you know that the church wants to cultivate in them a love of the sacred language you might start out with a lot of vernacular and a little bit of latin Mm -hmm. um and and work from there you know and i think that's that was really the best the the best that the second vatican council had um for the church is a greater allowance of well meeting people where they were at but what we lost i think in large part in the implementation was forgetting where we were going yeah that's right and where we came from and what well right where we're going sort of is where we came from (laughs) yeah so i mean basically I think really what what bothers me isn't the use of the vernacular, um, sure. personally, right? I, I I think it's cool to hear Latin in the liturgy and everything, but if you have a responsible translation, um, I don't really have a problem with that in principle. Yeah. What I have a problem with is kind of vilifying the the original language of the liturgy. That's what I have a problem with—the idea that somehow it's bad yeah. to use Latin. There's, there's just nothing in the documents to support that. Yep. Um, so the the last thing I want to I want to talk about, and just for a, a few minutes here is sure. um, is what we talked about. We talked about um, the position of the altar. We talked about the use of Latin. The last thing is really the music. Yeah. Right. Um, so what we got after the Second Vatican Council, what we got after the introduction uh, of the Novus Ordo, and believe me, uh, I remember this, okay? I, I, don't rem- I don't actually remember the, I don't remember the Usus Antiquior as an infant, although I would have been baptized. I was born in 1968. I would have been baptized when it was probably still in use. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I remember the early days of the Novus Ordo. I have very clear recollections of liturgy in the early 70s. And I remember the guitars, the folk masses, right? Yeah. Uh, which are still going on today. Yeah. I basically grew up. Music. I grew up in that. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that what the Second Vatican Council called for? I would say definitively not yeah what it called for it's totally not what they called for yeah so uh, if you actually read sacrosanctum concilium Mm -hmm. paragraph 116 here i'll just read it the church acknowledges gregorian chant as specially suited to the roman liturgy therefore other things being equal it should be given pride of place in liturgical services that's a little unclear what pride of place actually means but i think it's it's not, it's what we've been getting at this whole time. This Ars Celebrandi idea mm-hmm. of 
what's, you know, we, there's room to play here because not everyone appreciates Gregorian chant the first time they hear it. But the church is holding it up as the ideal. This is what we should be working towards, especially suited for the Roman liturgy, for the worship of God. Um, the very next sentence, actually, in Sacrosanctum Concilium says, other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from, the litur from liturgical celebration, so long as they accord with the spirit of liturgical action. So the council is not excluding other forms of music, but it's holding up Guru and Chant as the ideal. Yeah. So I want to I want to actually just make a couple comments about this because I think we have this totally backward. All right. We act as if the goal was to sort of make things um, to dust everything off and make things as new as possible. That's not at all what was happening. Actually, during the sort of uh, Baroque period, right, we moved from the from Gregorian chant into sacred polyphony, right? Like mm -hmm. you have with uh, David Toria. Yep. And and then from there into these very complicated Baroque sorts of masses, right? Yeah. Um, now Bach was a Lutheran, but I mean, you know, think about that kind of thing. And then finally Mozart with uh, the the Rococo period. And you've got mass settings, in some cases being used in actual celebration of the liturgy. And you can't, yeah. you need like a professional chorus to sing yeah. this. Well, there you've got an issue where the prayers proper to the laity yeah. can't be sung by the laity because yeah. they can't keep up with Mozart. What they can keep up with is Gregorian chant, which is even less complex and more primitive than Devatoria's polyphony. Right. This was not a move toward folk music. It wasn't a move toward novelty, but a move backward historically. Yes. Something more primitive and therefore more accessible. Right. Which is the sort of irony of it is that the Gregorian chant is supposed to be the more accessible form of music. And it is. Yeah. Once you kind of get used to singing it. Yeah. But this is the kind of thing where you have to You've got to um, you've got to live with it for a little while. Trust sure. me, if you roll out Gregorian chant in your parish and you stick with it for six months, pretty soon your people are going to learn it. Yeah, it's not hard. I can attest to it. I have learned it. Yeah, so that's that's really where um, that's really where things are. I think what we so what the council fathers actually had in mind, what the documents actually said, and what people think they said really aren't always the same thing. Right. And I think more... On these major points, they're pretty much not at all. Right. And more so, just what's, what's the, the vast majority experience of the faithful in the church today? is probably the, the mass without Gregorian chant, without ad orientum, and without Latin in the liturgy. Yes. Um, and, excuse me. And, uh, and a lot of times people... Well, the mistaken belief is that the mass that lacks all those things is the mass of the council. And I think just what we are trying to do today for our listeners is recover a notion of what the council actually intended. How, despite the changes that the council made, 
how did the council envision mass being said in that context? And when we think about, you know, the, the this idea that there, this acknowledgement, even by Francis, right, who is not the favorite pope of many traditionalist Catholics, um, even by Francis, that there have been massive liturgical abuses and we right. need to restore the dignity and piety of the liturgy. Yeah. Um, what would that actually look like? What does being true to, to the to the intentions of the council fathers actually look like. Yep. It, it's not what you and I normally experience at liturgy on any given Sunday in any given parish in the United States or Europe. Right. So, um, so great. Any final thoughts? Um, well, I did have one final thought. I think this will be a, a parting thought um, is that, you know, people who want this liturgy, I, I'm, I'm one of a number of, of people my age or around my age, my generation say, who have sort of rediscovered tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe we go to the Latin mass, the Usus Antiquior sometimes or exclusively, um, or maybe we just happen to like a Novus Ordo with chant, Latin and ad orientum. And I, th I think, I do think it's unfortunate sometimes that, um, you know, we get this label you know, we get kind of labeled uh, as, as rad trads or some other kind of label. Um, and it can be frustrating sometimes. It really can because we're the, you know, we go back and we read the documents and we kind of feel vindicated, right? Like my liturgical sensibilities are being affirmed by the very council, which is supposedly the council that's denying me the liturgical sensibilities that I have. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and there, it just, there, there comes this like tension between the, the theory, like the documents of the council and then the implementation, the praxis of, of what actually um, do you find in the parishes being lived out. And so I think for me, the takeaway from all of this should be we have to cultivate a legitimate Ars Celebrandi and learn how to balance freedom, as in the, the freedom to take um, you know, options in the liturgy with the ideal that the church holds up. Mm -hmm. The reason there's the freedom here is to guide the flock back to the ideal. Um, and so on the one side, we have to say, it's okay that not everybody's at that ideal. And there will be liturgies out there that might not make full use of the things that we've been talking about today. But on the other hand, there is an ideal and it should be like worked toward. And that's a hard thing to have to hold in tension. You know, you want to grab both horns of that bull at one time and, and wrestle with it, mm -hmm. but it can be done. And so I think that's my, my final parting thought. All right. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Mr. Ross. Thank you for having me back on. It was and a joy and a pleasure. Audience, I would say, don't forget to subscribe and to, you know, like this video and share it and all that kind of good stuff. It's very important. It helps us to broaden our mission 
and hopefully lead more souls to heaven. So thanks for joining us. Have a good day.